You're listening to episode 73 of the Daily Growth Discipleship Podcast. I'm Josh Havens. And I'm Chris Lamberth. And we're on a journey to learn what it means to live a lifestyle of discipleship. We're glad you're joining us and hope that as you set aside this time for God, that he would help you grow today in the everyday moments of life. Juanita Rasmus is a pastor, spiritual director, and contemplative. She served as a member of the board of directors for Renovare and its ministry team founded by Richard Foster. Additionally, she serves on the board of her alma mater, Houston Graduate School of Theology, and on the advisory board for Rice University's Religion and Public Life program. Juanita co-leads the St. John's Church in downtown Houston with her husband, Rudy, which they planted together in 1992. We each have an inner story about who we think we are. This self-narrative guides our lives and the decisions we make. Are we the kind of person who goes skydiving? Or are we the kind of person who buys a boat or goes camping or lives in an apartment and not a house? The answers to these questions really have to do with our identity, who we are. As, As Seth Godin describes, people like us do things like this. But what happens when the narrative we've created for ourselves can no longer support us? What happens when our life falls apart and we are forced to reevaluate who we are? This experience can shake us to our core and send us spiraling into the depths of depression. This is the experience Juanita describes in her book, Learning to Be, as the identity she had built for herself had to be torn down so that God could reveal to her who he was had created her to be. Juanita, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Josh, Chris, thanks for having me. Yeah, really good to be speaking with you. Really been looking forward to talking about uh, your book, Learning to Be, Finding Your Center After the Bottom Falls Out. Um, Well, this title, well, the cover is beautiful, of course, but the title really grabbed us because... Um, man, if there's one thing we love to talk about, it's identity and trying to discover and figure out who God has created us uh, to be, because we have found it to be the most important step in our discipleship process, certainly over the last few years. And I think, I think this has got to be the place where we all start to certainly go deeper with Christ. And it is certainly that decision we have to make when we come to, you know, follow him as Lord. It's also one of the places we get stuck a lot too. Exactly. Which is why I think it's so important for us to figure out and, and actually have as a starting point. That's right. I don't know. I don't know about anybody else, but for me, I find myself coming back to this issue over and over and over again. And often, like I tell my pastoral coach, I'm like, can't I just be done with this lesson <laughs> now? <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. That's right. And so Juanita, you you're talking about in the book an experience that you had with dealing with the same thing and yet you were a pastor have been serving the Lord for many many years. Um tell us where did this book come from and uh what sort of uh precipitated this uh the crash as you call it um that that sort of led you on this journey. Sure. Well, let me tell you. My husband and I are co-pastors at St. John's in downtown Houston. We started with nine members and at the time of my crash, we had uh, about 3,500 members, which had, the church had grown in about seven years from nine people to 3,500. So there was a lot going on, all right? And you add a lot going on and rapid growth to uh, two very ambitious young pastors. Uh, we had two daughters who were in, who were three and four years old when we started the ministry. And basically at that point, we had about three employees, my husband, myself, 
and a secretary. And mm. so there was a lot happening. Um, and we were both uh, had backgrounds of being entrepreneurs. So we're used to uh, everything from the rooter to the tutor, as they say, <laughs> in terms of managing uh, an, an enterprise, right? And so church in terms of um, the, the things that were required, Bible studies. I taught two Bible studies a week. Rudy and I had a model of rotating the preaching. So one, one Sunday I preached, the next Sunday he preached. And uh, it wasn't uncommon to have to go from unstopping the toilet to washing your hands and then running to the pulpit to preach the sermon, okay? So when I say <laughs> yeah. it was a lot going on, trust me, okay? Um, and then you're trying to raise a family, uh, and then you bring, in my case, a narrative uh, that was the equivalent of putting a crack addict in a, a crack house. The narrative for me was one of wanting to be a good little girl, follow all the rules. Uh, perfectionism was important. Performance was important. I was driven, type A to say the least. Um, and what you find is that this this rapid growth literally had me like a gerbil on a gerbil wheel and I'm spinning and not realizing I'm spinning out of control. And in my case, it wasn't an outward thing uh, where I affected other people, at least not knowingly, but it was very inward. One morning I got up to prepare breakfast for my family um, as we always did, because as I said, our lives were so busy. Breakfast was pretty much the only meal we were going to share together in the day. And so I prepared breakfast. My husband said, baby, would you like me to take the girls to school? And I said, that'd be great. It'll allow me to put my makeup on in the bathroom mirror instead of the rear view mirror, you know? <laughs> um, and so I went in, I hugged them and I kissed them goodbye and said, have a great day. Went into the bathroom and began to put on my makeup and all of a sudden I felt so sick. Um, I, I try to relate it to people by saying it kind of felt like flu symptoms when they just kind of hit you all of a sudden. Um, and so I called the office and told my secretary that I wasn't feeling well. And I said, look, I think if I just lay down, maybe I've just been moving too fast this morning, you know, um, maybe if I lay down for a bit, I can come in for noon, hung up the phone, literally had what I've heard so many people describe as an out-of-body experience where I was watching myself pick up the phone, hit redial to say, I'm not coming in. I don't know if I'm ever coming back. I'm going to take a leave of absence or a medical leave or something. Hung up the phone, got in bed, and began a process of sleeping 18 to 20 hours a day for months. Mm -hmm. After about two weeks of that, my husband said, baby, I think something is wrong. Let's let's go see a doctor. Because at first we just thought I was exhausted. Right. Um, which certainly would have been <laughs> a reality for both of us at that point. But it was a little more than just exhaustion. It was vicarious trauma. It was dealing with grief and loss of uh, some members who had died recently who happened to be dear friends of mine. It was it was compounded. um, um emotional experience and then the impact of this narrative that just had me driven uh, with no relief in sight. And so the body and the mind did for me what I couldn't do for myself. They made me stop. Yeah. So what I love about your story is that 
you are very open and honest about the struggles that you went through. Um, that's one of the things we've been talking to lots of people on the podcast about. And it's, it's kind of become one of my pet peeves is that, um, you know, the church, which is supposed to be the hospital for the sick and, you know, spiritually and, and physically, sure. of course, we do the worst job, it seems at times, of making space to really be open and honest about the struggles and the difficulties that we that we that we bring. And sure. um, it, it seems like we don't even have a good response mechanism where it's like somebody comes in and they struggle with something. We almost treat them like, oh, like what's wrong with you? Or m- maybe go get your life right and then you can come back. Um, uh, I know certainly that's not your church, but other churches, you know, ha- ha- have have come to that. So I, I want to say thank you for being open about your story. And um, I, I know one of the reasons why you wanted to write this book and, and talk about this is to really sort of uncover a lot of these stigmas that surround sure. uh, mental illness and, 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 exactly. and the trauma that can come up with with that. Um, so you are in bed for, for weeks and, uh, months, so I, months, months, yeah, months. months. Um, but <laughs> yeah. like th- that two week period, what is, what did that process look like for you to even say, okay, maybe there is something wrong and, and listen to your husband enough to go? Because Josh and I have fought our, our share of, of bouts with, with depression. Um, I, that sometimes taking that first step can su- be the hardest Absolutely. step because you, you're in denial, of course, and sure. you don't think anything's wrong, but then right. you're just, sh- you are, you're exhausted. Nothing, yeah. nothing can get you out of, and out to of a bed. Extent, diving deeper into the pain, actually, you, you yeah. think it feels better to do that yes. than to, to fix it. And so you end up in these self-destructive cycles where you get depressed about being depressed and you think, oh, well, I'll just be depressed again. And then you get more depressed because you've given up the <laughs> depression and I, yeah. it, it's a, uh, it's vicious. Yeah. So I guess yeah. the, I guess the question maybe the heart of the question is, is when did you really realize that there was something wrong and that you needed to get help or, or seek counseling of some kind for what you were dealing with? Well, you know, I'm really grateful that my husband suggested that I needed to go see a doctor because um, in the state of mind that I was in, I wouldn't have been able to call that for myself. Um, I, because every time I got in bed, it just felt like, well, I just feel like I need more sleep. Um, and so finally, when he suggested that, I went to see my primary care physician after the two weeks. And then she uh, decided to do a, a battery of tests. She took blood and um, she said, let's rule some things out. Let's see what might be going on. And so we ruled out hyper or hypothyroidism. We ruled out diabetes because those and many other illnesses can mimic depression in the body, right? When the systems aren't functioning well. Um, and so after we ruled those things out, she said, Ms. Rasmus, I think you need to see a psychiatrist. I think that um, they might be able to help you. And so I set up an appointment to see a psychiatrist. And sure enough, when I went in to see the psychiatrist, she said to me after an hour session of kind of probing and asking me questions. And I was telling her, you know, that things like I couldn't read, I could not study uh, my Bible. I could not pray. Um, normal things that for me, um, just based on my temperament were my go-to tools, you know, in any crisis, be able to pray in any crisis, be able to read scripture. That was not happening. Um, I stayed in bed so long, um, that I got to the point where I would turn my head to the left or to the right 
and wonder what was the smell only to realize the odor was me because I hadn't been able to get out of bed to care for my personal hygiene needs. Um, and so when we talked, she diagnosed me as having a major depressive episode. Um, at the time, I didn't realize it, but as a part of the journey of recovery, and I don't like using the word recovery. I prefer to say my journey towards learning to live with a mental health diagnosis mm. is that I realized that um, depression and bipolar disorder were in my family, which I never knew before. Number one, because we never named it. Right. And so seeing the therapist helped me to name my experience. And for me, that was pivotal. Um, because for me, I've always felt if I can name something, then we can begin to decide what's the strategy. How do we move forward? Uh, what are we being invited into? What, what kind of transformation are we to anticipate? Right. And so she gave me medication and, um, uh, Probably three or so months into the medication, um, one of the things that happened for me is I started having panic attacks. I had never had a panic attack before. Mine showed up as when the phone would ring, you know, during the course of the day, uh, may, maybe a friend or a family member was called to see how I was doing. Because at that point, um, early on, I'm not quite sure if we had really named what was happening to me to people. I don't, I don't, I don't remember. Um, um, my daughter and my husband write in learning to be about their experience um, in terms of what was going on with us as a family. But when I told her every time the phone rang, I literally lost my breath. I couldn't breathe. Um, and I, I was trembling inside. And so, uh, matter of fact, I told my husband this first. I said, you know, when the phone rings, I'm just shaking inside and, and I can't breathe. Um, and so he said, OK, so let's turn the phone off. And this was, you know, old school phones, not cell phones. Uh, so we turned off the landline and every day at noon. He would call me on my cell phone. So when I saw the psychiatrist, I told her what was going on. And so she decided that I was, she named it, that I was having panic attacks, which I didn't even know. I mean, I knew about the phrase panic attacks, but I never knew what having one felt like. Um, and so she began to give me medication then for the anxiety that I was experiencing. Because I had not named anxiety, I didn't realize until I wrote the book that I had actually been feeling anxiety prior to this, but it didn't show up as a panic attack. It showed up as, you remember those old Ever Ready Bunny commercials and you see them wind the Ever Ready Bunny up and, you know, the bunny moves and then it stops, right? Yeah. Well, uh, I always felt like I was wound up too tight. And it was probably a couple of months before the actual crash, which is what I called the day when I made the call to our secretary and began the sleeping process. I felt I was just wound up too tight. I remember one day heading to the church after dropping the girls off at school and I got myself a meditation CD and an incense so that I could play the meditation CD while I headed to work, right? Now, anybody who's ever had a meditation CD know it's, knows that it says, do not operate. 
mechanical, yeah. uh, you know, cars or anything, vehicles while listening to this meditation tape. But I was so wound up inside. I just felt I had to try to do something, right? So then I get one of those long, skinny incense that my husband keeps around. And I'm in the car, pushed in the CD, and I was in an incline on a street here in Houston. And we were waiting for the light to change, the cars that, you know, the line of traffic that I was in. I stuck in the cigarette lighter, pulled it out to light the incense in the car while I'm listening to the meditation CD, right? And I dropped the cigarette lighter. So I reached down to pick it up, take my foot off the brake, bam, hit the car in front of me. Oh, no. All right. That was the beginning of the crash, but I didn't know it at the time. Mm -hmm. You see, I was literally crashing into other cars. That was like the third one within about a 60 day period of time. And I didn't I wasn't aware and I, I I didn't even think uh I don't even think I, I think our lives were so wound up it didn't seem weird that I'd had three crashes in ninety days or sixty <laughs> days or whatever it was because I wasn't able to notice what I was noticing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The 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 space was amazing. Uh one of the things that I want to say to uh believers is that when we experience a person who is ill, please don't tell them, pray more and read more scripture. You must not be reading enough Bible. You must not be praying enough. Because I can assure you that a person in this state, in this condition, is reaching out to God and reaching out for hope in the ways that they know how. For me, those ways were simply shut down. And so they weren't accessible to me anymore based on what was going on in my mind. You know, I like the way that you're talking about not just recovery, but uh, living with the diagnosis. And you mentioned earlier the word narrative several times. Yes. I mean, when we're we're going through dark nights of the soul like this, these these episodes, um, it seems like a lot of us are looking for meaning in some way like if we can understand why this is happening um somehow we can we can get through this stuff and you and you look at uh people like uh victor frankel experienced the concentration camps he said we can learn to live with any uh how as long as we have a why a reason for why this is happening What, what um what would you say was was the catalyst for your your crash is it this narrative that that was driving you is it genes is it hereditary is it a combination of all of those things what's the what's the 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 thing that drove you to this point i think it was a perfect storm i think it was my narrative i think it was dna i think it was also um vicarious trauma our ministry at saint john's um, especially at that point in our lives, uh, was filled with men and women who were in recovery. We were doing a lot of work with the homeless community. And so I was hearing a lot of, a lot of tragedy. Um, I, I'm surprised I didn't have PTSD on top of all of this, you know, uh, because I had not been trained, nor had my husband really been trained, uh, to deal with 
hearing all these traumatic, gruesome, I mean, horrible stories. And the, the way I knew to process my pain was to stuff it, you know, stuff it and keep moving. Go on to the next thing. What's next on the to-do list? And so I, I, I think it was a, a perfect storm. Uh, I, in the course of the diagnosis and learning to live with it, I came to realize, as I said earlier, that depression and bipolar disorder were in my family for several generations. And, and again, we had never named it. Um, so that was that. But my narrative I think so much of this experience of the dark night of the soul for me was that my story could no longer support me. Mm. And it became an invitation. And I say it in the book. Uh, One of the most pivotal points for me was when the spirit said to me, I'll give you the treasures out of this darkness. And when I heard that, Thank God for being known by God, right? God knows what to say to us. For me, that meant get out a pencil, take notes of what you're about to experience. And for me, it gave me hope. The notion that I would be able to claim the treasure out of the darkness meant I'd have to live to do that, right? So for me, that took suicide off the table. Although for me, often my suicidal ideation came in the form of believing that someone was going to kill me and that I wouldn't be able to pick my children up from school. And so I just once I told my husband that he started picking the kids up. And so in some ways that that didn't keep triggering that thought for me. Right. Um, But, yeah, it's a combination of all of the above. I've often said, and I I say in learning to be, you know, the story of Humpty Dumpty, Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall, had a great fall, all the king's horses, all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. I'm so grateful that I couldn't be put together again because that wasn't the invitation. Mm. The invitation was to come to know who I really was and that I was a human being, not a human doing. The invitation was to come and to redefine exactly who I am, get to really know who I was, but then also get to know and define God Mm -hmm. in ways that were more expansive Uh, because for me, most of my life, God was a cross between Santa Claus and Judge Judy, and either one of them could jack up your Christmas. All right, uh, you know, Santa's keeping a list who's naughty and nice, you know, and and Judge Judy could just throw the book at you, and you'd be wearing orange forever and a day, right? Uh, and so for me, it was always this this notion of dualistic thinking: black, white, rich, poor, good, bad, no gray. And then I end up pastoring a church that is 9,999,000 shades of gray. Mm -hmm. And so my paradigm, my narrative was always getting pushed up against, right? Uh, Because if I'm trying to be a good girl, that means there's some bad girls and some bad boys, right? And so I'm always trying to figure out how do I love the bad boys and the bad girls? How do I be present to the bad boys and the bad girls, because in my mind, you avoided the bad girls and the bad boys, right? And so it was time. I believe that when it's time for healing to occur, 
that it shows up in various ways. It shows up sometimes in the physical body, like it did for me. And when I say the body, I don't mean just the mental. Uh, it showed up as lower back pain that just came out of nowhere, headaches that came out of nowhere, all these wacky physical symptoms. And I, at the time, I was 35 years old, so I wasn't, I wasn't expecting all this stuff. I never had headaches, you know, never had lower back pain. And so the body was trying to say, hey, pay attention. There, there's there's something going on here, but I would just take a Tylenol and keep trucking, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then, of course, the mind was doing its part to help me recognize that we were being invited into a significant space of transformation. Yeah. That phrase, my story could no longer support me, that's yeah. a perfect articulation of my experience with the thing that triggered my crash. Um, yeah. It was like in a moment, everything was undone. So I grew up in the church. Um, my parents uh, did some missions work and my dad was always the, uh, either the worship leader or the deacon. And uh, we were, I, I was basically everything but the pastor's kid. Sure. And sure. so all through, all through middle school, all through high school, we moved around a lot. I'd learned to define myself in terms of this is the kind of person that uh, a good church kid is going to be. Yeah. They, they get involved in all the programs. They, sure. they do all the right things. They know they're going to sure. go to Bible college, become yeah. a, a minister, and do all these things. And I did all of those things. Um, went all the way through Bible college, all the way through seminary. Uh, ended up moving to a, a campground to do what we had hoped was some very intense discipleship work. While we were there... Um, everything kind of came crashing down and I I can remember the moment very vividly. I was riding in a car with my wife and a couple of other people to a, uh, a a meeting or a conference or, or something. And we turned this one corner. I could probably take you back to that exact corner. And it just hit me in that moment. It was those flu-like symptoms yes. where it, it was like a, a warm feeling all the way through my body and, and the back of my neck starts tingling and you feel like you're going to throw up. Yes, and, 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 and other things. And, <laughs> yeah. And from that moment forward for about two months, uh, it was basically, I'm going to cur- come home from work, curl up on the couch and wait for the time where I have to go to work. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I was in a place where I couldn't even really afford to to leave work for an, any extended period of time. Sure. Occasionally, uh, this is Iowa in the middle of winter, and so it gets cold. There were times where I would bundle up um, and just go go for a walk at like 11 o'clock at night in the 8 to 10 inches of snow, 20 degree below weather. And my wife yeah. would say, you know, there were times where you would leave and I wasn't sure you were coming back. Wow. And... Yeah. uh it was it was that I somehow had a a glance or a glimpse of who I was and my story of what a good Christian boy should be yeah. could no longer support that. And yeah. so, like you were saying, we're taught to to stay away from the bad the bad boys yeah, and the bad girls. Exactly. Now all of exactly. a sudden, I recognize. Wait a minute. That's me. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I got to stay away from myself. Right, right, <laughs> either, right. Either that or I have to deny that I am who I am. Yeah. And so that yeah. two months was me saying, no, no, there's no way that I'm, there's no way. 
And through the next couple of years after that, it was a journey of learning to accept the diagnosis. I I wasn't ever officially diagnosed, but (laughs) every, every story that I read, it was basically that, um, made a connection with a pastoral coach and we had regular, regular calls together. Um, and through that, my relationship with Chris and my wife, uh, we worked through this together and it was a slow journey of accepting the diagnosis and learning to embrace who I am and not the story that I was claiming, claiming to be. Yeah. Yeah. So that. Again, it's one of the reasons why I really wanted to have you on the podcast because I knew this story would resonate. Um, what did your process then, after crashing and having being broken down, what did the process look like on your journey to rediscover who you were and who God had uh, called you to be and who, you know your identity? Yes. You know, one of the things that happened for me, and, and I share this in Learning to Be, is that I had been shown this model called Jahari's window, and it's a four-paned window. And in one corner, there's the me I see. In the other, there's the me others see. The third corner is the me I don't want you to see. And then the fourth corner is the me that only God sees. The good news for me is that I had already seen the me that I saw and that others saw and that I didn't want you to see. What I saw in this experience was an invitation to get to know the me that only God sees. I recognize that so much of the story um, that I had been telling myself, and we start these stories, you know, the ego starts these stories in childhood, you know, two or three years old, uh, when we're nonverbal usually. And so the story for me really boiled down to not feeling worthy. Um, feeling as though I wasn't enough, okay? And so as I began to um, move through the process, the Spirit started speaking to me about things um, and pointing things out to me, um, helping me to see, you know, that long list of scriptures we give new believers. I am uh, a, a creature in Christ. I'm a new, I'm, you know, I'm new birth. All that list of that list meant nothing to me, mm. even though I passed it out for years. Right. I couldn't feel that. I couldn't experience that. But it was in the crash that, that the spirit said to me, if you'll let me. I'll help you build a life you can live with. And so some of those formative steps uh, are laid out in learning to be one of which was I remember going uh, to see my psychiatrist and she asked me, what did I want? She said, Ms. Rasmus, what do you want? What do you really want? Right. You see, nobody asks us, what do we really want? Uh, Not in a significant way that invites us to say, hey, yeah, since my old life has crashed and burned right before my very eyes, I might want to think about what do I really want, right? So what do I want? And so when I got home, I was thinking about that, and the Spirit said, so what do you want? What is it that you want, right? And so for me, I'm, I'm saying, God, you know how blank my mind is. I have no clue. And so the the Lord told me to take a file folder 
right on it, want to, W-A-N-T-T-O-S, right, want to's. And whenever I would see an image in a magazine or a piece of junk mail and it showed something that I thought, well, hey, maybe I would like to do some of that. Uh, I remember one of the first pictures was a picture of a person in a hot air balloon. And so I tore that out of the Houston Chronicle, dropped it in the file folder. And then every day or several times a week, I would just open that file folder and look at the words like adventure that I had dropped in it. Look at the images that I dropped in it. And I knew a little bit about the mind and and I knew a little bit to know that in essence, God was helping me to begin to dream again. Right. And so part of that want to the spirit asked me, so where is the place you've always wanted to go? And I said, God, you know, I don't remember. (laughs) So God said, Africa, you've always wanted to go to Africa. And I said, oh, I, okay, if you say so. So I wrote on Africa on a little piece of paper, dropped it in the want to file. You see, what I recognize is that my performance addiction, my approval seeking, my um, drivenness drove joy right out of my life. Because everything was about getting the to-do list done. And the to-do list was ever increasing, right? And so what you end up doing is saying, well, I can, I, can, I can take some time from the family time to finish my sermon. I can take some time from date night. Rudy, can we do date night another night? I really need to work on this sermon or Bible study. or Kids, instead of movie night tonight, mom really has got to finish this sermon. So you and your dad go eat the popcorn and, and, and just have fun without me, right? We keep pushing away. All the things that could be avenues that would give us life, that help us with meaning, that help us understand who we are and whose we are. And so when God said if, he would, if I would let him, he would help me build a life that I could live with. That began another sizable step. And the want to file became a tangible thing because what I realized And in chapter 12, I think it is, or 13, I talk about going skydiving. I've always wanted to go skydiving since I was a kid. But I had a grandmother who, when she saw me climb trees and jump off of her porch, she would say, don't do that. You're going to fall and break your neck, right? And there are some personalities. I'm a one on the Enneagram. There are some personalities that um, because we're so rigid, because we're so rule oriented, that became a rule. Okay, don't have fun because you could fall and break your neck. Right. And so you find little by little. The joy, pleasure, excitement, fun gets taken out of your life. Mm -hmm. And so it was an invitation uh, for me. The, one of the other things the Spirit told me was that I had boxed myself in by my rules, and I had boxed God out because God wasn't interested in rules, but in deep abiding relationship. Yeah, that's good. You know, when I was uh, I listened to your book on uh, on audio. And I remember listening to your story at the beginning and 
So we love talking about the Enneagram. It's it's one of our favorite tools here. And uh, so I, I was like, you know what? I got to talk to her about the Enneagram. I bet you she's a one. And then later on, <laughs> you, you talk about it. You got it. Uh, because I'm a one as well. And so oh, I relate so very much to the story. Well, like even, even when you were talking about, right, all of those I am scriptures, uh, you know, this has been one of my biggest struggles. And Josh and I have talked about this. It's like, those must be for somebody else. And like right. the word you said, worthy, right? It's really right. struggling with that, that worthiness of, uh, in fact, I even told Josh, it wasn't long. It, it, it was not, not long ago. It wasn't long ago. I'm, I'm ashamed to say, I guess, uh, it was, uh, I was just like, you know, and it's, it's the height of arrogance, but it was just like, I don't think God should love me, you know, type mm. that, that, that's that feeling that you, mm. when you get there. And so, yeah. um, what did that, I, I'm really interested in this want to folder. Cause I think this is yeah. a great idea and probably yeah. something I should do, um, for myself. What did that really represent for you? Was that just, was it your way of learning to dream or to discover your true desires again? Is that what that was? or It was all of that. And it was also learning about who I was. Oh. I'm a person who appreciates adventure and fun. I appreciate play. Um, the Lord told me to start a garden. I didn't even know a thing about gardening, right? I had killed mm-hmm. plastic plants before. So, you know, <laughs> it was like, what do you mean you want me to start a garden? And so I started a garden and found out I love gardening. It's an easy way for me to be in nature because I found out I love being in nature. I, I, there's a chapter in, in learning to be about climbing Mount Quandry. At an incredible period of my life where I was in a quandary, right? And Mm -hmm. so I'm learning things about myself that I had no clue about. And the want to folder became kind of a trigger for noticing what I was noticing. That God was inviting me to not live the Juanita in between the two uh, double yellow lines, but to live the Juanita that took up six lanes on the freeway. The more expansive self, you know, Um, and so for me, it's been amazing to even now still be finding want to still be, you know, one of the things I want to do this summer is to get um, scuba certified. It's something I have wanted to do, but I've often thought, well, if I had a companion and now I've decided Hell, I'm my best companion, all right? So me and me going to go do this thing, right? Uh, And so uh, just learning to lighten up, Mm -hmm. learning to to allow for the expansive self, the one who set all those rules and all those boundaries crushed my soul. Mm. Man, that's good. The lives of those around her unknowingly particularly yeah. my children. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I wanted to talk about that. We we don't have a whole lot of time, but that I, I'm sure you could talk about a lot of how, well, I, I will ask about that a, a little bit because your, um, your daughters and your husband did write you letters that you read in the book, which were, um, you know, you know, very touching. How did your, how did your family cope with this period of your life? And then I, I guess then what does that relationship look like as you, as you've come out of this? Um, sure. how, how has that changed? 
Well, you know, I think one of the big issues is that um, I wish that we had named my mental health diagnosis to my daughters earlier. I think we were so thrown by, you know, just all of a sudden I can't get out of bed. So now my husband is being mom and dad and uh, he had a co-pastor. Now he's it. You know, (laughs) we're not splitting responsibilities anymore. And so really it was just kind of could he keep the wheels on the bus? So mm-hmm. girls, it's time to get up. We got to go to school. We got to work, you know. Um, and so I don't think we shared with them as much as now I would have uh, because I would have helped them to understand this better. Um, but the good news is that my daughters are both mental health professionals. Um, mm-hmm. They both have masters in psychology. Well, our oldest daughter has two masters in psychology and our youngest daughter is a psychiatrist. Um, the oldest daughter really is using the education track. She's really interested in empowering people through education. And then my youngest daughter uses her psychiatry practice as a means to help bring hope to people because she's seeing that you can live with the diagnosis. I think one of the reasons that people commit suicide in the midst of depression is because they don't understand that the depression and that, that darkness is simply the death of the old narrative. Mm-hmm. And that if they could see themselves as the caterpillar who has uh, attached themselves to the eave of the roof, right? And it's hanging upside down and it's creating a chrysalis and is going to die to themselves yet break free be transformed into this marvelous butterfly. I think that people wouldn't give up. Mm -hmm. But because the darkness is so dark, because it feels so hopeless, because we're not talking about what the dark night of the soul is about, it's about transcendence. It's about transformation. It's not about the end. Mm-hmm. And if we're tr- if we are to die to ourselves, I've said this on the podcast. It it literally does. It feels like you're dying to yeah, yourself. Like does. you are it losing does. a part of yourself, exactly. and that can like that's a huge trigger for me sure. in, in my stuff. And so it's like, well, if if that's not who I am, then I guess I might as well. Like I told again, very, very recent. I told Josh the other day, I was just content just to, I had so much to do though. So like, I'm like, okay, I got to do this and this and this. And for some reason I was perfectly content to just sit there and do nothing. And that was causing me a lot of pain because I didn't know why. Like, was that the Lord doing something in my heart to just say, you know what, Chris, you can just sit here and just be, and you were perfectly fine doing that. Or... Was I losing the part of me that makes me me that wants to go and do the things? Because there's stuff to be, you know, very, again, very relatable to your story. It's like there's stuff to do. I got to get up. I got to go and do it. And so at least I've, I think, you know, I've learned to feel that when it does, it feels like you're losing that part of yourself. It's hard to let go because, yeah, if you don't have that story or that narrative, that understanding of who you are. Right. Then you don't feel like uh, you feel like you're falling in that bottomless black pit that you you describe. And so um, I I do. I just want to underscore. I think that is such an encouraging point to people that are dealing with with these issues, because so many of us are and we're unwilling to admit it. 
Yeah. Well, and you know, sometimes I don't even know if we're unwilling. It's just the fog is so thick. That's true too. Yeah. You know, um, and one of the things that I, uh, and I, I share this in learning to be, it's a tool that I highly recommend. All right. And it's called the work.com by Byron Katie. So as you were sitting there that day and had all this stuff to do, but had decided to just give yourself permission to be right. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I would have asked you is what is your belief in this moment? What were you believing? Not so much in the moment where you were sitting there doing nothing, but you said you, you alluded to shortly after that or during that, you started to judge that. Hey, shouldn't I be getting up doing something? So then you ask yourself, here's the first question. Is it true? Is it true? And you might say, yes, you ought to see my to-do list. I can prove <laughs> it's true. Okay, then you say to yourself, okay, is it really true that I have to get up and do all of this stuff right now? And then you say the third question. How do I respond when I believe that thought? Mm. That I have to get up and do all these things. And then you begin to tell you, to discover. I I get anxiety. I I feel um, like I've just got to take some action. I I begin to make the next phone call, whatever. You 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 notice what you noticing, uh, notice rather about how you respond when you believe that thought. Now here's the fourth question: Who would you be without that thought? The thought that I have to get up and do something. Who would I be? Who would you be without that thought? Well, <laughs> so, <laughs> okay, we'll be real. Let's be real. That's basically the question that we were trying to work through. <laughs> that, that is it. Um, so number one, the answer to the first questions was, I don't deserve to take this break. So that is was it. Is it true? Is it true? It, well, and that's almost what Josh told me. He, he asked yeah. me. Uh, the other thing, so then the answer to the last question was, is uh, a worthless. So who would you be without the thought that you oh, have to I get be? up? Yeah. Yeah. Who would you be without the thought that you have to get up and do something? Yeah. See, that's a hard question to answer. Sure. You know why it's so hard? Because for years we have played the same record over and over mm-hmm. again about how we are to be in the world. These questions help us break that record. Yeah. And we begin to lay new tracks. We know a lot more now about neuroscience and we understand that we can begin to tell ourselves a new narrative. So if you say, well, I would be worthless, then you say, "Okay, wait a minute. If God could rest on the seventh day and I'm created in the image of God, then why couldn't I rest? Mm hmm. If that rest was important for God and God is the creator and sustainer of the universe, wouldn't rest be more necessary for me? Right? And so we literally, I I recently, uh, last week, I had to address my paradigm. One of those old beliefs came up again about not doing enough. And I had to stop and say, wait a minute. Is it true? Is it true? You see, one of the things I found out, I don't know if you, you, I think, uh, Josh, you said you're a parent, right? Yeah. Are you a parent, Chris? Yes. So when your baby or babies were born, 
What did they have to do to earn your love? Not a single thing. <laughs> See, the funny thing is you're basically rehearsing the conversation that we were going through. And I don't think we, I don't think we resolved it at a heart level. Yes. Yeah, so, at a head level. So let's do some heart work. Okay. Yeah. So here's what I'd like you to do. I would like you both to put your feet flat on the floor, turn your hands palm side up and rest them on your thighs. And I want you to remember the very first time you saw your babies. And, th and this can be done for people who don't have children. There's other ways to do it. Remember the very first time you saw that baby. And remember the very first time you felt love, something about that child, you felt attached to this child. Uh, maybe it was the first time the baby cried and you couldn't settle it down. Or um, what? Remember a time when you felt love for that baby. And now I'd like you to imagine that baby being in you. That baby who is growing in you. That baby that you love. That is in you. And now speak to that baby in your heart. Welcome that baby's presence. Thank that baby for being so alive and so vital. Thank that baby for showing up. And I invite you to breathe in deeply and fully and bring that love up into your body. Bring it into your chest. Breathe in through the nose and out through the mouth. And this form of breathing helps to calm the autonomic nervous system, exhaling through the mouth. And now say to that baby, thank you. And say, I love you. And I'm so glad you're here. When we do this kind of meditative practice where we stop, where we give ourselves permission to notice what we're noticing. We get to write a new dialogue. We change up our experience for what we know to be truth. That baby is worthy, and you are that baby. And now you get to speak life to yourself. You can open your eyes. And you get to love on yourself in the ways that you need. You see, I think what happened last week at the Capitol is the fact that we as believers have not been having these moments of deep knowing that goes beyond the head and into the heart. We've spent a lot of time talking about words, using words, and yet I found all of us have one thing, if not two things in common. 
most people who are experiencing hatred, whether it's hatred out there or hatred in here, want to be loved. But when we get so busy doing, we don't pay attention to the ways we are loved. So in learning to be, I invite people to use the examine, E-X-A-M-E-N, where we re- at the end of the day, we settle ourselves, we breathe, we invite spirit to help us review our day and notice what gave us life. Notice how we received love, how we gave love, what spoke to us, what, what lifted our spirits, what made us laugh. And then we give thanks for seeing those things. And then the second part is we ask spirit to show us the places where we held back from love, where we didn't give it and we weren't open to receive it, where something felt taken from us, where we felt like um, the conversation drained us or whatever. Notice what we're noticing about what wasn't life-giving. And we thank God for letting us see it, right? And then lean in, lean in, lean in towards the camera. Come on, lean in, lean in, guys. Be nosy, okay? Then we do more of what gave us life. And we do less of what took life from us. You see, the invitation is to notice what we're noticing. In that moment when you saw your babies and then you imagined carrying those babies within you, everybody that showed up at the Capitol last week was carrying a wounded baby. But there are other ways that we can heal the need for affirming love. And so I try to share those practices, and that's what learning to be really is about. Juanita, I I can't thank you enough. Um, It's been life-giving. Thank you for sharing your life with us for... Uh, walking us through those exercises. Um, I hope our listeners participated as well. Um, if not, rewind it and do it. <laughs> I, I mean, you may you you may not be able to see it. I I, I do. I have tears down my cheeks. Um, I I needed that. So thank you, thank you so much. My pleasure. Um, I I I think that's just the best possible way we could end um, our time together. Um, people can. <clears throat> go to Amazon, of course, get your book, listen to it on Audible. It was a great listen. Um, where can people go to find out more about the work that you're doing and um, get connected with you? Oh, thank you. They can go to Juanita Rasmus, J-U-A-N-I-T-A-R-A-S-M-U-S.com. And I'm on social media, Twitter, uh, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And so they can join me there as well. Uh, and again, we will have links to everything in the show notes, guys, so you can go down there and check everything out that we've talked about in this episode. Juanita, again, thank you so much for being with us. It was a blessing. Thank you. Let's do it again sometimes. How can you create a lifestyle of discipleship? Most Christians think discipleship is a program or a few practices thrown in at the beginning or end of the day. But we want to help you create a lifestyle where walking with Jesus throughout the day is not only possible, but natural. And we have a tool that's going to help you do just that. It's called the Daily Growth Journal. 
It's a guided journal that's going to help you become secure in your identity with God and authentically walk with Him in your daily life. Growing daily in your walk with Christ is possible if you cultivate a lifestyle of discipleship. And the Daily Growth Journal will help you do just that. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Daily Growth Discipleship Podcast. To find out more about Juanita's work, check out JuanitaRasmus.com. If you like what you've heard this week, be sure to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast player you use. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to stay up to date on everything happening at Daily Growth Discipleship, go to DailyGrowthDiscipleship.com and subscribe for free. You can also subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Spotify.